Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. pray and we're going to dive right into our last week of our series that we've been in for the last couple of months this fall called The Great Invitation and uh, excited to kind of conclude our series this morning. So why don't we pray and uh, jump right into it. God, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for our community that is here to to, uh, gather in community, to worship you to hear your word, to uh, connect with you in a significant way. And, and God, we pray that as we open your word this morning, you would, um, you would speak to us. You would um, illuminate our hearts to, um, to see what you might say and challenge and invite us in particular into this morning. So um, we give you this time. We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned we've, we've been in this, this series called The Great Invitation. We've been exploring what it means to follow Jesus. We get this invitation again and again throughout the Gospels where Jesus says, come follow me. And we've talked about a number of themes and topics uh, in the last couple of months, but there's one theme in particular that kind of runs throughout all of the other ones. It's sort of like a thread that kind of weaves together, brings together so many of the other themes we've talked about. In fact, it's a theme that runs all throughout the story of Scripture, Old and New Testament. And on one hand, it's like so cliche, you're going to like your eyes, I can feel them rolling back into your brain. On the other hand, it's so needed and lacking in our context today. And so I want to read from Mark chapter 3 and see if you can just kind of pick out where we're going as we read. Mark 3 says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's our text for the morning. <laughs> this is a text that so easily kind of gets over, overlooked. It's the one where you're reading it and you just quickly kind of jump to the end because you're like, okay, it's a bunch of names. It's like the genealogies. You like Old Testament? You're like, yeah, I'll just skip that chapter. Um, we do that with this text where we kind of just skim over it. But there's something really important within this text that kind of drives the whole of Jesus' ministry. Because in this text, Jesus is forming a community. He's calling to him a community to follow him. Community is the thread that kind of weaves together, brings together all of the other themes we've talked about in this series. And I've, I've argued that Jesus offers us the same invitation he does to his disciples, to come follow me. And while that invitation is personal, it's for each one of us, it's not just personal. It's not just about us. By inviting us to follow uh, by inviting us to follow him, Jesus was also inviting us to be part of a new community that he was forming. Think about some of the stories we've hit so far in this series. Um, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We, we kind of like to think of 
ourselves in the story, as, as Jesus kind of maybe washing our feet in this, this beautiful picture. And that's true, but the context for that story is community. Jesus does it to show his disciples how they ought to live together in community. The context is community. When Jesus talks about humility or becoming like a child or, or how to steward power or to embrace a rhythm of rest, the context is always community. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon us, the Holy Spirit comes upon a community to form a community. Community is like the glue that kind of holds all the other pieces in place. But I don't necessarily want to spend 20 minutes trying to convince you to like join a community group. That is not my, that is not my end goal here. So you can just breathe. I'm assuming you kind of know community is important that you've probably heard it before. Yeah, community, I should, yeah, it's, that's, that's an important thing. I'm, I'm assuming you're already there. Even if you struggle with it, even if it's hard to cultivate, even if you're frustrated trying to step into community. Rather, I wanna talk about two unique kind of obstacles, two sort of threats to healthy, good community that we face in our context today. Because I think some of the greatest threats to our faith are not necessarily the ones that make the headlines, that kind of get a lot of the attention. I think, honestly, some of the greatest threats to our faith are a little bit more like under the surface, invisible. They're kind of almost more sinister. Like they get into our thinking, into our culture, to the point where we don't actually even really recognize them. And there's two that we face to community that are more obscure, more under the surface, but that kind of pull us away from the kind of community Jesus would have for us. Two threats that would kind of tear away at the fabric of community that we must be aware of, but also resist. And the first is the challenge of hyper-individualism. So generally speaking, our society is built around kind of the, the, the freedoms and rights of the individual. In almost every sphere of life, we prioritize the individual or the self. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there's some beautiful, beautiful things that have come from prioritizing individual rights. Um, we have a, a whole movement of, of you know, civil rights for recognizing every person is made in the image of God that is worthy of freedoms and rights. Um, the fact that each of us gets to vote is kind of a byproduct of this. There have been millions of people who have been freed from oppression, from the human rights movement. There's a really beautiful aspect to individual rights and freedom. And on the one hand, we have a society that sort of caters to our desires, our the rights, the desires of the individual, of the self, which is why, I looked this up this week, you can go to Starbucks and order one of 170,000 different combinations of drinks. Like, the options are literally endless, unless you're looking for eggnog, then you got to come to our coffee shop on Sundays. See what I did? You're just, you have to come back. But we, I, I like that, right? You like that. You, you want the control. You want to control exactly how many pumps of vanilla go into your, you know, vanilla latte or whatever. We like the control. But there is a tension that we experience and feel with this. Um, we saw this tension play out with COVID restrictions. Regardless of kind of where you landed on COVID restrictions, all of us felt a tension Right, where, where kind of our individual rights and freedoms, there's kind of an overlap with COVID restrictions where we felt all of a sudden like, man, I can't do what I want, when I want, how I want. 
that's a high value in our society, in an individualistic society. It kind of interfered with that. We see this tension play out in all sorts of really kind of hot-button cultural issues. Um, we think of like the pro-life, pro-choice debate. The phrase that often comes out of the pro-choice movement is this phrase, my body, my choice, which just kind of elevates my ability to do what I want, how I want, when I want, where I want. Um, we, we experience, uh, we, our, our society celebrates the ability for the individual to choose most of the time. And we see this now in all sorts of new ways, right? Like how we define uh, gender or sexuality or what we do with our sexuality. Like we, we feel the tension of how far this kind of individualistic um, expression is going. But before I touch on another any other sensitive cultural issues before you throw your extra hot oat milk, half sweet vanilla latte at me? Let me just share how I see this kind of affecting our faith and how it, how it relates to community. Because there's sort of a dark side to hyper-individualism as it relates to our faith. And we're seeing some of the fruit of that today. Um, without even realizing it, we can begin to see following Jesus as a kind of individual thing as a solo endeavor, something I do sort of on my own. And if someone else kind of rubs shoulders with me in the process, great, but not really needed. Sort of a solo mission. It's just me and Jesus. Sometimes we sing about it. Like, all I need is you, Lord. Nothing else. You know, take the world, just give me Jesus. We sing these songs that reinforce an idea that actually all we really need is me and Jesus. We've kind of uh, catered to uh, a me and Jesus approach so often, and community becomes optional at best or just kind of rejected altogether. More and more, we're seeing people divorce their commitment to their faith from their commitment to a faith community. But this is a modern phenomenon. Like, this is not the historic church. This is a modern movement where we want Jesus, we like Jesus most, most of the time, um, we don't really want his church. We don't really want his people. It's a modern movement. And it's a trend that has been accelerated by the pandemic, of course, like most things, because we kind of catered to the individual in the pandemic, right? We did this. And by we, I mean us at the house. We did this too, where we catered to the individual. Like, join us online whenever, wherever, however you want. You want YouTube, we got it. Facebook, live stream, Instagram Live, probably, I don't know where the heck we're streaming, but like everywhere, like whatever's convenient for you, we'll just post the service online and you access it from the comfort of your home when it fits into your schedule. And all of that is not bad. And I'm not here to like rail on online engagement or church because there's a, a really important thing there. But often it kind of reinforced the idea that that following Jesus is just about me and Jesus. It kind of reinforced this idea that our, our online engagement often replaced our community engagement. We'll just post the service. And you can kind of tailor your church experience however you want or not. Like you do you, it's, it's great. You can kind of suit, you know, suit church to your desires. But 
Our faith and our commitment to community is not like a Starbucks drink order. You don't always get to customize it and tailor it to your wants and needs and desires, however, whenever, wherever you want. That's not the kind of community Jesus was forming. And the byproduct of this kind of extreme hyper-individualism is so often isolation. It leaves us more isolated than connected. A study from the US just a couple of years ago revealed that 40% of people have zero, to say they have zero to one confidant. So like 40% of people feel like they have almost no one to actually talk to. The average American has gone from having 3.2 friends to 1.8 in just a few years. And there's all sorts of talk now about this kind of loneliness epidemic. And we see stats, um, finally, stats from Canada just last year revealed that one in four young adults, and this is right off Statistics Canada website, one in four young adults say they always or often feel lonely. Always or often, not like once in a while, but always or often. One of the unfortunate outcomes of kind of a hyper-individualistic society and mindset is isolation we end up kind of removing and distancing ourselves from other people. The ability to do what I want, when I want, how I want, ends up giving us all sorts of forms of expression, but often leaving us on an island alone. But Jesus called to himself a community. He called to himself a community. And as much as we'd love to take Jesus and kind of leave the whole community bit, because it's, I get it, like it's it's hard. It's it's messy, There's there's nights we would much rather just have another night to you know, watch Netflix than be in community with people who we sometimes like and sometimes get frustrated with, right? Like we get it. I would love to just plug in my podcast. Like I love a, pod, a good podcast lineup. Like, you know, you get them all back to back to back. Man, I love that. My quiet time, my silence, my coffee. That sounds amazing. But that's not the invitation from Jesus. The great invitation to follow Jesus is also an invitation into community. D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, was visiting a prominent Chicago citizen uh, when the idea, he was kind of talking about church and faith and the idea of church involvement and church membership in particular kind of came up. And this prominent citizen, they were sitting together next to a fireplace Uh, this prominent citizen said, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside it. And D.L. Moody said nothing. Instead, he just got up, he went to the fireplace, and he pulled out a, a burning ember from the fireplace, and he set it on its own, kind of just outside of the fire. And they sat there, the two men sat there together as the winter was blazing outside and this fire was just raging to keep them warm. And slowly the ember just trickled out. It just slowly died out. And eventually the other man just simply looked over and just said, I see. It's like he gets it. A me and Jesus approach to faith fits our kind of romantic individualistic mindset where we can just have Jesus and nothing else, it doesn't really fit into Jesus' vision for his church. And more often than not, it leaves us isolated. Right? The Bible is not just a story of individuals who kind of do something cool, who have a great relationship with God and do something cool and we kind of celebrate them. The Bible is a story of God forming a community, calling a community to himself. But we like to read, this, read the Bible as though it was written just to 
to us, right? And part of the problem is our English translations. We don't really have a good, um, we, we use the word you in both singular and plural. Like I can say you and talk about you specifically, or I can say you, and I'm talking about like you guys, right? So we use this word you for both singular and plural. But in scripture, there was different words. There was a plural and a singular version of that. And so sometimes we read scripture, specifically the New Testament, and we imagine Paul is writing these letters like to me. Paul is like speaking directly. The Bible is God's love letter to me personally. It's not, um, though there are some deeply personal aspects of the Bible. But most of the time when the word you shows up, it's plural. A better, a better word would be y'all. We don't really use that here. It's weird, like y'all. But like all y'alls, it's like just too weird. Um, but that actually is a helpful translation and it's maybe more appropriate down south. But let me give you a couple examples. When Paul says in Colossians, he says, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We go, man, Christ in me, the hope of glory. No, <laughs> Christ in Y'all, in all y'alls, Christ in you guys, in us, the hope of glory. Let me give you another one. First uh, Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We read that, we go, yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in me personally. He does, but that's the plural version. Don't you know that you guys are God's temple, that you collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in, in us, in you guys, not just in me. It's not a story about me and Jesus. It's a story about us. It's a story about what God is doing in and through community. Jesus calls us into community, and it's in the context of community where we learn how to follow him. That's where it happens. That's like the, the training grounds is in the midst of community that sometimes you love and it's a delight and sometimes it's a duty and it's a discipline and it's hard work. So we have to resist this pull to make faith a solo endeavor, something we do on our own by ourselves where it's just me and Jesus. We have to resist the call to isolation and individualism. Jesus calls us to move against the grain into community. But this leads us to the second threat we face, I think, particularly, particularly in our context and culture today, um, which is tribalism. Because so often, as our world gets more polarized, as we engage more diverse issues, as there's just a variety of things that we're talking about in the news and in conversations today, and as we look to engage in community, like as we go, okay, I need community, I'm gonna go find community. The temptation is that we surround ourselves with people who think like us, act like us, live like us, believe like us. And we surround ourselves with people who are so like us that we have no room for people who are different. We call it in culture, the echo chamber, where everything around you and everyone around you kind of reinforces what you already think or believe. And everything you read online reinforces your point of view. And of course, social media will just like cater to exactly what you think and believe and reinforce that with more of the same. But listen again to Mark chapter three. These are the 12 Jesus appointed. Simon, 
James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Within Jesus' closest tight-knit community was all sorts of diversity. There were fishermen, there were tradesmen, there were Roman tax collectors, there was a Roman anarchist, there was a guy filled with doubt next to a guy filled with boldness, with, with an ego so big his head was just ready to explode at all times. It was a hodgepodge, mishmash, eclectic, ordinary, yet diverse group of people Jesus called to himself. It was a community, diverse in nature, when Jesus handpicks his community, he casts a wide net. About 30 years ago, um, a, a team of researchers began studying church growth. This was kind of at the beginning and even just before sort of the, the big kind of mega church movement. And they observed that the fastest growing churches often lacked diversity. Uh, instead, these churches were filled with people who shared the same race, economic status, culture, and values. Um, and the explanation for this is simple. We are more comfortable in a group of people who are similar to us, right? Like all of us are, myself included. A group is likely to grow faster if everyone within it is the same. Makes sense. The researchers called it the homogenous unit principle. And it was meant to be an observation, uh, but ambitious pastors kind of quickly took it as a, as a prescription for how to grow their churches. Because if church growth happened without diversity, we just needed to kind of get rid of diversity and our churches will grow. And of course, they never framed it that way. We just called it defining our target audience. And so we kind of catered to a very specific single demographic where we were trying to draw people who live and think and spend and vote and believe just like us and our churches would grow. And it was an effective way to grow a church. But it's not how Jesus grew his church. It's not how Jesus built community. Now we have an emphasis here on reaching young adults. We have a, a, a focal point, kind of a missional commitment to young adults, in part because young adults are leaving the church faster than ever. And so we have that, but it's not at the expense of other generations. We need everyone, every personality type, every ethnicity, every age demographic. We had our, um, yesterday, we had our Alpha Day, where we spent the day at Green Bay Bible Camp. And um, I was just reminded again, like, there is such beauty and diversity in, in people who have been following Jesus for, for decades and some who are just kind of stepping in. There's something we benefit from. There's a beauty, beautiful uh, contribution each person makes to the conversation as we gather together. And so at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's gathering a diverse group of people to follow him, a community. He's forming this community. And it's telling that when Jesus prays for his disciples, right at the end of his ministry, he prays that they would be unified. John 17 says this, I pray also, this is Jesus' words, for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
the beginning of his ministry, he's forming a diverse community. At the end of his ministry, he's praying that they would be unified after he goes. Usually we build community around a shared interest, something we like, a hobby, an interest, more kind of recently, our political views or our opinions on any sort of given topic. Jesus builds his community around something different, around himself. He invites a whole host of people with all sorts of diverse opinions to gather around him, to make him the defining point of of, of similarity, not to flatten out our differences, not to make us all think and believe exactly the same on every given topic, but to unite around him. Francis Chan says, unity comes at a cost, but it commands a blessing. It's hard, it's messy, it's painful at times. It's costly, but it commands a blessing. In the midst of it, we meet Jesus. We grow in our faith. We learn what it means to follow Jesus. And that brings us this morning to the communion table. Um, I, I often wonder, out of all the things Jesus kind of gave us to, to honor him, to remember him, why did he give us this weird thing called communion, the Last Supper, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it? Why, out of all the things he could have done to, to remember and honor him, he gives us this meal. I've shared before that I have a, a big family. My parents had six kids. I'm the youngest of, of six. And all of us siblings are very unique. Like some families, there's like this, this you know, blend. There's like this similarity. Uh, my brothers and sisters are all very unique. And we all have very different opinions on a whole range of topics. And we all happen to hold them very strongly, um, which is just a very good mix for dinnertime conversations. Both of my sisters... Um, married Americans. So one of my sisters married a, a, a logger in South Idaho who lives on like an acreage. And my other sister who um, has a PhD in, in piano, she teaches piano at a university. She met her husband who is a percussionist doing their doctorate degree in Michigan. So like opposite sides of everything. One that's like rural Idaho in the middle of nowhere. One that's like in academia, who's like in the arts program, okay? So very different sides of the political spectrum, very different sides of pretty much every spectrum. And so we have some really great dinnertime conversations as politics comes up around election seasons. Um, there are some tense moments. There are some hot, you know, hotly debated topics. But every year, we gather around the table, despite our differences in life experience, in political views, religious views, our stages of life, how many kids we have. Every year we gather around the table because we're family. And that simple fact supersedes all of the other differences we may have. And could it be that Jesus gave us the communion table for a similar reason, to gather? He gives us this practice of coming to the table with all sorts of people who are different than you, but we share together something that is so much more significant. The early church celebrated communion as a meal in homes around dinner tables. Um, the, the kind of traditional word is the Eucharist, which actually just means Thanksgiving. It was a celebration of, of, of how Jesus removed everything between us and him, but also everything between us and one another. That like at the table of Jesus... Jew and Gentile were welcome, male and female, slave and free, the religious elite and the poor, uh, like every single person is welcome. It was a celebration of what Jesus had done. These meals became a countercultural picture 
of community, of the community Jesus was forming. Around this table, differences lose their significance. We, we share in, in common something that is so much greater than our differences. Scott McKnight says, the church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. And so we started this series in September, celebrating communion together. Some of you were, were there. It's only fitting that we finish our series celebrating communion because we come back again and again to this table to celebrate the work of Jesus. We don't move on and sort of leave it behind. We come back, we circle back again and again to what Jesus has done to make us one, to give us right relationship with him and to, to tear down the barriers between us. We come back to commit again and again to put him at the center of our lives. And so this morning we're gonna take communion together and the band's gonna play. And uh, when you're ready, you can just find the table that's closest to you. There's uh, the bread and the cup on either of these tables, and there's one at the back for the kids section at the back. Um, you can find the table that's closest to you, and the band's going to play, and you can just come up and, and grab it when you're ready. The crackers are gluten-free, and uh, we're just going to hold on to the emblems together until everyone's been served, because again, while this is a me and Jesus moment, it's not just a me and Jesus moment. It's an us and Jesus moment. We take communion together as a community. We celebrate the work God has done, giving us the ability to gather as his people, as his church. So let me pray, and then you can come when you're ready. Just grab the emblems. Jesus, we thank you that you invite us in to your table to sit with you, with your people, to celebrate together this new community that you are forming. God, would our church be a picture of a diverse group of people who share in common one thing, our faith and our commitment to you. Would you help us unite around that fact, not our views on whatever given topic, but around your life, death, and resurrection, the new life that we have in you. So we celebrate that this morning, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.